Congregation, this afternoon's text is the Word of God as confessed and summarized by the churches in Lord's Day 45. We'll read that together. You can find it in the back of the Book of Praise on page 559. There it asks the question, why is prayer necessary for Christians? Because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness which God requires of us. Moreover, God will give His grace and the Holy Spirit only to those who constantly and with heartfelt longing ask Him for these gifts and thank Him for them. What belongs to a prayer which pleases God and is heard by Him? First, we must from the heart call upon the one true God only who has revealed Himself in His Word for all that He has commanded us to pray. Second, we must thoroughly know our need and misery so that we may humble ourselves before God. Third, we must rest on this firm foundation that although we do not deserve it, God will certainly hear our prayer for the sake of Christ our Lord as he has promised us in his word. What has God commanded us to ask of him? All the things we need for body and soul, as included in the prayer which Christ our Lord himself taught us. And finally, what is the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debt as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ, most of us recognize that music is a central part of worship. In fact, in the past few years, many hours have been spent studying and revising the psalms and hymns in our current book of praise. After all, we want to ensure that they are scripturally sound, suitable for singing in the congregation, and pleasing to the Lord. There's also been a lot of discussion about how the music might be enhanced. What instruments should be used? Should we add more songs or maintain the ones that we have? Is there a place for contemporary music or not? And it's not my intention to come to a conclusion about all of these matters here this afternoon, some of which may be rather controversial. But it shows us something, that we as church are deeply concerned about singing praises to our God. The music is close to our heart, as it should be. The psalmist in Psalm 147 states it well. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. And yet, on another front, one's left wondering if this emphasis betrays something else. Is all well? Because the catechism states that prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness which God requires of us. And that begs the question, 
How much energy do we, vote, do we devote to the topic of prayer? Are we as committed and excited about our prayer life as we are about singing the Lord's praises? And in bringing this to your attention, I don't wish to discourage a healthy enthusiasm about singing praises to the Lord. Absolutely not. But to show that prayer is a rather neglected topic. And sometimes, often, much lower on our list of priorities than it ought to be. Beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ, we need to be busy promoting a healthy prayer life within the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, the authors of the Catechism have committed a total of eight Lord's Days to the topic of prayer. Beginning in Lord's Day 45 and concluding in Lord's Day 52. The first of these Lord's Days, Lord's Day 45, gives us an introduction to what the churches confess regarding prayer. And concludes by introducing the prayer that Jesus gave his own disciples. The Lord's Prayer. This prayer serves as a model or a template for the way a Christian ought to pray and will be discussed in detail in Lord's Days 46 through 52. But today, in Lord's Day 45, we will situate the Lord's Prayer in its proper context and look at prayer in the light of what Christ teaches us in Matthew 6. When he first teaches his disciples to pray our much beloved Lord's Prayer. And as we will discover, this has a great deal to do with the coming of the kingdom of God. Therefore, I preach to you God's word under the following theme and points. With the coming of the kingdom, Christ teaches his disciples to pray. We see the necessity of prayer, the attitude of prayer. And finally, the content of prayer. Beloved, it's in Matthew 6 that Jesus first teaches his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer that we all know so well. Jesus does not give this prayer as an isolated teaching. Rather, we find it right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount follows shortly after Jesus begins his ministry in Matthew 4. And one of the central themes that appears early on in the Gospel of Matthew is the kingdom of God. John the Baptist paved the way for Jesus coming, preaching, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus himself, after he begins to preach, takes much the same approach as we can read in Matthew 4, verse 17, where he tells us, that from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The disciples stood on the threshold of the coming of Christ's kingdom. The kingdom that had long been promised was going to be established. Jesus, the Savior, had come at last. Zechariah also prophesies about it in Luke chapter 1. There we read, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. 
Zechariah says that this coming of the kingdom was prophesied from of old. In fact, it goes way back to the fall. Adam and Eve, after they fell, two kingdoms emerged. And these kingdoms were at war. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we first see this division between Seth and Lamech. Seth, the replacement of Abel, follows in the line of the woman. While Lamech follows in the footsteps of his father Cain. In the line of the serpent. And this would be the pattern that dominates the pages of the Old Testament. Shem in the line of salvation and Nimrod in the line of apostasy. The battle between these two opposing kingdoms even raises its ugly head in the midst of God's own people. In the days of Samuel, the people of God demanded a king like all the nations around them. Well, God wanted a king after his own heart, a messianic king to follow him in righteousness and holiness. And Matthew records that this very kingdom was at hand. The fulfillment of all God's promises about the coming Messiah was about to take place. Salvation had come. What reason could evoke greater need for thanksgiving than the coming of the kingdom of God? The coming of the kingdom meant salvation for God's people. The long-awaited Savior had arrived. The line of the serpent would be unable to circumvent the fulfillment of God's promises. Victory over sin and death was on the horizon. And although there would be opposition, the kingdom of God would be established. John records that Jesus himself, before going to the cross, declared, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has no claim on me. And it was in this context of Jesus coming victory, that he gives his disciples the Lord's Prayer. And for this reason, many have considered the second petition, Thy kingdom come, to be the central component of the Lord's Prayer. The disciples are being confronted with the coming of the kingdom of God. Such a confrontation demanded a response. And Jesus teaches them to respond in true thankfulness. He teaches them to pray. With the kingdom at hand, he teaches them to say, Yes, Lord, may your kingdom come. This is in keeping with what the Catechism teaches in question and answer 116, where it tells us that prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness which God requires of us. And Jesus impresses that upon his disciples by teaching them the Lord's Prayer. Psalm 116, which is used as a proof text for Lord's Day 45, in which we read earlier, asks the question, What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? And the psalmist answers, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. For the disciples, salvation was no longer a promise off in the distance. No, the Savior stood there in his very midst and he was proclaiming the kingdom was at hand. What could have been a greater blessing than the coming of the kingdom? 
If there had ever been a time when the psalmist's words rang true, it was at that time. In the face of such wonderful news, it would have been the most fitting response. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. It demanded a response of thankfulness. And Jesus does not leave them floundering for words. No, but he gives them a prayer suitable for the occasion. And it's a prayer that we continue to pray as we should. Although we no longer stand on the threshold of the coming of Christ's kingdom, we have as much reason to respond in thankfulness as they did back then. Because his kingdom has come. And it has been established with his victory on the cross. Upon his ascension, he took his throne and he sits in heavenly glory, ruling his kingdom from heaven. And we too are being confronted with this victory week after week, Sunday after Sunday, as the heralds of God's word proclaim the good news from the pulpits far and near. And it still demands a response from us, beloved. A response of thankfulness. Do we respond as the psalmist does in Psalm 116? Do you cry out in thankfulness as he did? I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. Is that the desire of your heart? Because the catechism makes it clear. God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who constantly and with heartfelt longing ask him for these gifts and thank him for them. You see, Jesus does more than just teach his disciples how to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. He also assures them in the next chapter in Matthew 7 that those who come with this thankful response in the face of the kingdom will also be able to ask for his good gifts in the confidence that he would provide everything that they needed. Listen to the promise that Jesus makes in Matthew 7, verse 7 and 8. Familiar words to us all, I would think. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What an assurance we have, beloved, that when we ask in faith, our God hears us, and with such a blessing, how could we fail to give thanks by offering up our prayers and thanksgiving? Zacharias Eusenius, in his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, compares a Christian in prayer to a beggar. A beggar who is at the mercy of the giver must ask with a heartfelt desire. And if such a beggar wishes to continue to receive they must show thankfulness for what they have already been given. That is the response that we owe our King. That is why the Catechism teaches that prayer is necessary for Christians. Those that have true faith, who have experienced the coming of the kingdom and the grace that follows. It's impossible for someone who has tasted of the riches of that kingdom not to desire more. So that our constant desire becomes a desire to bring praise to our God. And so it's fitting that the catechism asks the subsequent question. 
What then belongs to a prayer which pleases God and is heard by Him? And that brings us to our second point, the attitude of prayer. The Catechism begins by insisting that prayer be a matter of the heart. We must from the heart call upon the one true God only. In Scripture, the heart refers to more than just that warm, fuzzy emotion that we sometimes get. But rather it involves the will and the desire of the one who comes in prayer. That's why token prayers made out in the open to impress my neighbors will not be pleasing to the Lord as Jesus makes clear in our reading. And so he instructs us, when you pray you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And likewise, Jesus discourages prayer that is offered like a work of righteousness with the thought that by the sheer volume of my words, I can get into the good books with the Lord. Much like the Church of Rome encouraging its patrons to say a certain number of Hail Marys for the payment of their sins. Not only is such a prayer offered to the wrong address, this attitude in prayer does not stem from a heart in submission to God, but rather from the notion that I can somehow repay God or induce a favorable response by my own efforts in prayer. And so Jesus teaches us, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. No, God wants a humble response that stems from a heart in submission to Him. You see, with the coming of the kingdom of God, a victory would be won over sin and death. We were dead in sin and misery. Our transgressions piling up subject to condemnation, and we were undeserving of God's grace. And in the face of the kingdom, we need to be keenly aware of that fact. Without the coming of the kingdom, we would have been lost, left in our sin and misery. That's why the Catechism clearly points out that we must thoroughly know our need and misery so that we may humble ourselves before God. Faced with our sin on one side and with Christ's victory on the other, we are humbled. Or at least we should be. Because we ourselves could never pay the debt for our sins. Only Jesus Christ could. And He did. And when we truly see our sin and our need, there's no room for self-promotion or works righteousness in our prayers. Rather, we must humbly come to Him, our Lord and Maker, looking to Him for everything that we need in Jesus Christ. No, a humble prayer in response to the coming of the kingdom would be in line with the previous chapter of Matthew's Gospel, where we find the Beatitudes. It's important to note that both the first and the last Beatitude contain a promise about the coming of Christ's kingdom. Here too we see the focus is on the kingdom. 
Jesus starts by declaring that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he concludes the last beatitude with a similar blessing. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit is to be dependent and reliant. It is the opposite of being proud and self-reliant. It goes hand in hand with the final beatitude. Only someone fully reliant upon the victory of Christ will be able to stand in the face of persecution for the sake of the kingdom. That's the kind of dependence that the kingdom of God demands and must exemplify our attitude in prayer. And yet although Christ has won the victory here on earth, we continue to struggle for that kingdom. And we long for the fullness of that kingdom to come. And that means I need to develop a mature attitude toward prayer. It means that through thick and thin, I humbly wait for the Lord my Savior, seeking my strength and my well-being from Him alone. For sinful humanity, it's our only option, really. Humble dependence upon the foundation of Christ and His sacrifice. That's what the Catechism reminds us of. We must rest on this firm foundation that although we do not deserve it, God will certainly hear our prayer for the sake of Christ our Lord. When we take this attitude in prayer, then it's not about my status with others, but about me and my Maker. And that's exactly what Jesus intends. That's why He encourages us, encourages us When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Strikingly, Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer on the heels of these instructions to be isolated in prayer. The Lord's Prayer is first and foremost intended to be a communal prayer as it's often used, but rather as a personal prayer. That's not to suggest that the Lord's Prayer should not be used communally. But from the context, we learn that our prayers, our personal prayers, should be modeled after the pattern that Jesus lays out in Matthew 6. Should be prayed from the heart in humility and dependence. A fitting response of thankfulness to the one true God who has established a kingdom that will never be overthrown where we are privileged to be citizens and members. But there is more, beloved. Such a response of thankfulness and prayer will not go unnoticed. No, our God assures us that whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. John 14, 13, 14. And in John 16, 23, again he says, If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And so the Catechism rightly confesses that God will certainly hear our prayer for the sake of Christ our Lord. For the sake of Christ, God hears us. But we should be careful here, beloved. We need to understand how this works. We shouldn't conclude that means that any prayer offered will then receive an affirmative answer. If I ask it, then God is certainly going to say yes. No, 
a humble prayer. From the heart, resting upon the foundation of Christ, we'll not seek that which is contrary to the will of God. Rather, it will be in harmony with God's word. God knows what is best for us. Jesus even reminds his disciples that your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And so we would do well to consider what God would have us pray. And again, Scripture does not leave us without an answer about the proper content of prayer. And that brings us to our third point, the content of prayer. Jesus instructs his disciples, pray then in this manner. Meaning that a word-for-word rendition of the Lord's Prayer is not necessarily what God is after. He says, no, pray in this manner. And he is providing us with a framework. Jesus is using the Lord's Prayer to teach the disciples that what content belongs to a suitable prayer in response to his coming and the coming of his kingdom. And if we look a little bit closer at the Lord's Prayer in in broad strokes, the first section of the Lord's Prayer deals with the kingdom directly. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And although the Catechism breaks this section down into several Lord's Days, it stands together with the focal point on the coming of his kingdom. Only those who have acknowledged the kingdom of God are truly in a position to address God as our Father. And it's only through true faith that one can hallow the name of God. For without faith, it is impossible to please Him. In other words, those who through faith are members of God's kingdom. And so Jesus is teaching His disciples to embrace the coming of the kingdom in faith. He teaches them to express their longing for the coming of the kingdom. Jesus preached that the kingdom was at hand and he instructs his disciples to respond with your kingdom come. And now that his kingdom has been established, it follows that a prayer of a disciple of Christ would desire the fullness of that kingdom. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You will notice that the prayer done behind closed doors that has the intent of transforming the whole world. For a Christian who has been confronted with the coming of the eternal kingdom of God, who has received the grace of Christ, there can be nothing more desirable than the consummation of all things, when the full manifestation of the kingdom will be revealed. And so, brothers and sisters, it must be our prayer that God will, God's will would be done in all aspects of life, in our daily walk, in the workplace, in politics and in government, in our justice system and in our schools, that every dark place be conquered and made subject to the kingdom of God. And while the first section of the Lord's Prayer is about God and His glory, about the coming of His kingdom, in the second section, Christ instructs His disciples to pray about their own personal needs, both their physical and spiritual needs. But we should not lose sight of our theme, brothers and sisters. These personal petitions address our need to be active members of God's kingdom. Please, Lord, give us what we require to enter in and serve in your kingdom. Food to sustain our lives, forgiveness from our sins, 
Compassion to forgive others. Deliverance from temptation and salvation from the evil one. And so I desire first and foremost the coming of your kingdom. And secondly, to be an active member of it. And the Lord's Prayer, cited in our catechism, concludes with words of praise. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And you will notice that this conclusion is not in Matthew 6. But it is certainly a fitting conclusion. Because this conclusion conveys the certainty that the coming of the kingdom called for earlier in the Lord's Prayer is a foregone conclusion. Beloved, as we wait for the fullness of the kingdom, that is our certainty as well. The victory has been won and the eternal kingdom has been established. We who from the heart make this our confession and our prayer, rely on upon the completed work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ can be assured that not only has His kingdom been established, but also that we are living members of it and can look forward to the kingdom in all its glory when Christ will come again on the last day. Amen.